Well, good morning. I'll say a quick word uh, about our two missionaries that were here up front real quickly. It's As I saw John and Monica up here speaking together about their various things, it occurs to me how odd it is and how unusual and what a great blessing it really is for a church to be able to, to see uh, a family from among them about to move across the world to Eastern Europe and and another member, Monica, soon to, to strike off into to Wycliffe Bible Translation Ministry, where she's been before, as she described. Um, Monica's plan, as I understand from her, is, is not actually to move back to Africa, where she lived before, but rather to North Carolina and to work from there. And she'll be traveling to, to Africa a fair amount for those uh, projects of Bible translation that she described. But I do encourage you to read in the newsletter as uh, she and John described to you, read that, pick that newsletter up and read that and see what her work is about and consider if, uh, if you might join her in that uh, as a, a supporting financial partner and certainly as a prayer partner. She needs that from her church family. Uh, this morning we're back in the Gospel of Luke once again, and so on page 6 of your bulletin you can see the text there. A couple of weeks ago John preached the verses that precede this one, and there. He described how in our relative material wealth, we, we treat this life in this world often as if it's all that we really should expect. In a sense, we get lulled to sleep when in actuality we ought to be homesick for, God, for what God really has for us. And so here in these verses, Jesus continues that thought somewhat with an exhortation to be ready, to be ready for what God really has for us because Jesus will return And when he does, don't be caught off guard and unprepared. This is John chapter 12, verse 35 and following. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. And if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us this morning, that you would, by the work of your Spirit, uh, enable our minds and our very souls to see and understand your word, to discern the truth of it, and to uh, acknowledge it, to recognize it, to believe it, and to find life in it. Father, we confess that if you don't do these things, then we are at uh, an impasse because there's no point apart from your working in us, Father. And so we ask that you would do that for your glory and for Jesus' name's sake, in whom we pray. Amen. Be seated. Just over two months ago, on December 26, a professional endurance athlete named Colin O'Brady finished a little hike that he had in mind for quite some time. It was a little hike that covered 930 miles over 54 days across the continent of Antarctica. He was not the first person to cross Antarctica on his own on foot, but he was the first person in history to cross Antarctica without assistance in the journey. The preparations that he made to get ready for this little hike were, as you might imagine, intense. He endured months of workouts under the leadership of a trainer in order to add 15 pounds of muscle mass to his body. And he routinely practiced what he was in for by dipping his hands into ice water and letting them freeze to the point of numbness and then practicing tying knots with his numbed fingers. And he did lots of research on Arctic types of equipment to know which tents and sleeping bags and items of clothing, boots and skis and such would be most helpful to him. And he even did blood work with nutritionists in order to optimize ingredients for a personalized protein bar that would maximize his body's ability to take in calories. Apparently you can do that if you go to the right lab. And that's what he did. And he did that because in order to cross over the frozen continent unaided, he had to, of course, carry all of his supplies on his own. He had to pull all of the things that he would need for the 930 miles from beginning to end along with him. And he did that by means of a sled that he pulled behind him, tied to his waist with a rope, and it it dragged along the ice behind him. And that sled, when he started out, weighed 375 pounds. And part of the preparation was to realize and, 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 and figure out how much that sled could weigh. And he finally understood that if that sled weighed more than 375, he could not pull it. And if it weighed less than 375, he would not survive the 930 miles. The preparations of his months before the trip were very intense. After months of labor and much assistance by other people, he finally was ready for his hike. And we may marvel at all the preparations that such an endurance athlete would make to be ready for a challenge like that one. And... 
yet there is a greater challenge yet to come in this world. It is a challenge that will require preparation if you are to be ready for it. And that challenge is the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what Luke tells us here in this passage, in this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples and with these people. Jesus had been speaking with this crowd of people and with his disciples directly. A man had come. We, we saw some weeks ago a man had come to Jesus and asked for his help to deal with the man's brother and their inheritance. And Jesus had addressed that request with a parable, a parable that communicated the exhortation, don't depend on your worldly possessions, rather be rich toward God. And then Jesus continued to explain, he said, don't let material dependencies stir anxiety in you, rather lay up your treasure in heaven, because God will give you his kingdom. And now, in these words that follow that, Jesus says, The day is coming when the Son of Man will return to usher in that kingdom that God really does have for you. And will you be ready when he comes? So, as you see the the bullet points of an outline in your bulletin, you see three of them. I'm actually going to add a first point to precede those three that you see there. I suppose this one was maybe so obvious that I didn't think about it enough before press time, and I didn't get it in there. But the first point is actually the timing of his coming. You can be ready if you acknowledge that the timing of his coming is not yours, it's his. Verse 35, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Jesus works his way through this sort of two parallel parables, maybe the development of the one into the second one. He works through there with a few different images to exhort our readiness, and most of them are imperatives, they're commands. He says to them, stay dressed for action. Literally, gird up your loins, as we like to say. That's the ancient language of the image. Tighten your belt, be ready for action. The same kind of thing we read back in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 12, when the Israelites are prepared for the, the Passover. And Moses tells them, he says, eat the Passover with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. That's what Jesus is saying to them here. Remember the Passover. This is how you're to be. As believers, dressed and ready for action. And he says to them, keep your lamps burning. No matter how late, in other words, it gets, you need to be able to see. And then he says to them, be like men who are waiting for their master. In other words, like servants or caretakers of a house who are waiting for their master who's out. They don't know when he's going to come back. It could be during the second watch of the night, which is, I think, 9 p.m. to midnight. Or maybe it's the third watch, which is after midnight to 3 a.m. Or maybe it's later than that. You don't know when it's going to be, but, but be like the men who are waiting for their master to arrive so they can open the door when he comes. And then he goes on to explain about the thief, the owner of the house. The master would not have left his house to be broken into if he'd known at what time the thief was going to come. He would have been ready if he'd known the timing of it. Scripture is very clear 
that the Son of God will come again, but it's not clear about when. Because the timing of His coming is not yours, it's His. There are various thoughts among Christians about what sort of a historical event, maybe, possibly, could trigger the second coming of Christ. There are Christians who, who believe that as soon as every tribe and tongue and nation of people in the world have been reached with the gospel, with the Bible, then Jesus will come back. There are Christians who believe that when the world is Christianized to a certain degree, then Jesus will come back. And there are Christians who believe that once the world has, has become evil to a certain degree, then Jesus will come back. Now, which is it? Is there any historical event that, that might trigger the second coming of Jesus? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I wish in a sense that we had a GPS tracker for Jesus. You know, I kind of wish that I could have him on my Life 360 on my smartphone and look up where he is at any given time and know what direction he's headed. That might help us. Jesus isn't interested in smartphones or GPS trackers. He doesn't need them. And if we think about it at all, it might be that we wonder, will he ever come back? Because we just kind of lull ourselves to sleep and assume maybe he never will. In the fall of 1941, for you history buffs, the confidence in U.S. military defenses in Hawaii was so strong. It was, it was very high as the World War unfolded. And, and on September 6th of that fall, 1941, a journalist named Clark Beach wrote these words in a newspaper in Hawaii. He, he wrote, A Japanese attack on Hawaii is regarded as the most unlikely thing in the world. One woman at the time remembered her father. She was a child at the time, and she remembered her father sometimes as he read these sorts of things in the newspaper. He would stand on their veranda in Hawaii and look out at the ocean, and, and he might see a little fishing boat on the water, and he would nudge his daughter and say, Look, honey, the Japanese are coming. And he would laugh because it was something of a joke. On December 4, Greg Akita, a teacher, led a discussion at his high school in his class on the question, can Hawaii be attacked? And the discussion in the class unfolded, and the answer was very obvious, almost unanimous. It was, it was no. He recorded later in his diary that the whole class decided, no, Hawaii can't be attacked. And three days later was the day that lives still in infamy. Verse 40, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We don't know when the Son of God will return, but we do know this, He will. He will return, and if you are to be ready, you must acknowledge that the timing of His coming is not yours. It's His. And then you must acknowledge as well that the dwelling in which you live is not yours, it's His. That is, where you live and everything that you have is not yours, it's His. That's what the passages that precede these verses tell us. Jesus has been teaching this crowd of people and His disciples about discipleship, and He had warned them against coveting 
other people's possessions. The parable of the rich fool communicated that. And then he exhorted them against the anxiety-inducing concern with legitimate worldly needs. And he, he told them, lay up your treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And now, speaking of the things that you have, he says, don't be so distracted by them that you're not ready when I come back. Those things, they're not yours anyway. Notice the obvious of the parable here, the, the, the obvious nature of it. There are men who are waiting, as he describes in the parable. These men are waiting in the master's house. They're not waiting in their own house. They're waiting in someone else's house, someone else who's in charge. It's not their house, and it's not their things in the house. They are the master's servants. And so are we. Now, I, I expect that most of us know this, probably, and most of us accept it. But, you know, in reality, we get mighty comfortable with the things that are in our possession. You know, imagine a babysitter. Some of you have babysat before. Some of you teenagers maybe regularly do babysit. And some of you have hired babysitters to come to your house and keep your kids. Imagine a babysitter. You know, you expect a babysitter to make themselves at home to some degree and to come into your house and take care of your kids, get them to bed at the right time. And they can sit on the couch and whatever parameters you lay out for the babysitter. But imagine you come home and the babysitters, well, the kids are in bed as they should be, but there's the babysitter wearing your comfortable bathrobe that was in the back of your closet and your bath slippers, and they're kicked up on, on the coffee table, and their friend is sitting there on the sofa. You don't know who their friend is, but there's their friend. They've well helped themselves to the refrigerator and all the food that is there, and, and you're beginning to get a little bit curious about what's going on here. And the babysitter sees you come in and, and says, oh, yeah, glad to see you're back, and we've made ourselves at home here. And by the way, I found a little extra money in your bedside table, and I hope that you don't mind. Your cable television service doesn't have the channels that I like to watch, and so the direct TV guy is on the roof now installing a satellite dish. Because if I'm going to be a part of this thing going forward, this is, this is what I like. I mean, at some point, that babysitter crossed the line. Did they not? This is what we're being described here. This is what we're seeing here. At some point, at some point a line has been crossed. Do we ever cross that line with what God has given to us? I think that we do. You know, when we insist on shaping our children in our own image, do we not do that? When we boast in the prosperity of our own business, when we behave like the... the, the ministry or the effort that we have seen grow up around us is our own doing by our own hands or when we make big plans to climb the ladder of success because we've made some good grades you know we often cross that line like the babysitter did just as Israel did in the old testament god spoke to them in ezekiel chapter 16 this is what god spoke to israel he said to them You took jewelry made of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and you made images of men to worship. 
And you took my oil and my incense and my bread that I had given you, and you offered it before those idols as a pleasing aroma. And listen to this one. You took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me, my children, and you offered them by fire to those idols. Do you hear that? God speaking to his people of the Old Testament. He's saying to them, everything that you have... You have because I gave it to you. It's mine. Even your own flesh and blood, even your own children are mine. You have them to use, but they belong to me. Your gold and silver, your grocery necessities, even the children of your womb, they're God's possessions for you to use. Even your own soul. What did Jesus said to the in the parable of the rich fool, he had said that God would come for this man and say to him, this very night your soul is required of you. Even your soul doesn't belong to you. All that you have and all that you are, the Creator God has placed in your hands to do what is good, to do what is redemptive, to do what's glorifying to Him. And so beware of how you treat what's in your possession. It does not belong to you. You can be ready for Jesus' return if you acknowledge that all that you have is not yours, it's His. And you can be ready if you acknowledge as well that the accounting of your work is not yours, it's His too. Verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us? Or for all? Peter has a question here. He's heard Jesus explain this this quick little parable here. And he's wondering, now are you talking to us here or to all this crowd here? And I don't know what's going on in Peter's mind exactly. But he's trying to discern exactly what Jesus' intent is. And so Jesus doesn't say yes or no. But his answer is yes and yes. Yes, this is For you, and yes, this is for everyone. Verse 42. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So Jesus expands the parable that he's already told. In a sense, he adds some more detail to it. This manager is a servant in the master's house, but this one is a servant with some authority. He's in charge of the master's household while the master is away. He's responsible to care for the other servants in the household, to give them their food at the proper time. It seems to me that Jesus is saying to Peter something like this. He's saying, Peter, look, I know. I know your zeal. And I know that you think that you'll stay awake through the second watch and the third watch and even the fourth watch. Peter, I know that you're zealous and and you expect that you'll stay up all night waiting faithfully. But there's a degree of responsibility here, Peter, that you need to recognize. There is work to be done. And when I return, I'll do the accounting of it, not you. Who is the faithful and wise manager of the master's household that Jesus describes here? Well, by the grace of God, ultimately, that's Jesus himself. But 
here it relates in application to anyone who has a role of spiritual leadership. Maybe it's especially pointed at the shepherds of the church, at Peter and other disciples, at at pastors of the church, at elders of the church. Maybe especially it's pointed at them, but really to anyone, any man or woman, young or old, who takes on some degree of spiritual responsibility in the lives of other people. The Lord has left you as a servant, as a manager, to work for Him. And will you work for Him? Or will you just work for yourself? Verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, My master's delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. In other words, this servant is just working for himself or his own selfish ends. And when the master comes, there will no doubt be trouble. Even degrees of accounting. What does Jesus say? Verse 47, he says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know, who was ignorant and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light Beating, even, even degrees of accounting here. Now, I don't think Jesus is endorsing slavery and certainly not abuse. He's speaking in the terms of the day. And in a sense, he's saying to us that knowledge of the gospel can be a dangerous thing. If you neglect it and ignore it. But ignorance of the gospel is really not, not a better option, is it? Our world doesn't like this. It doesn't like the notion of this kind of accountability to authority because our world just doesn't like authority. And our own hearts, we have to admit, chafe at the idea of authority, of being called to account for something because we want to account for it ourselves. But the point here is clear. There will be an accounting of your work. And it's not yours. It's His. Some of us need to hear that, I think. And even if it does feel maybe like the heavy burden of the law upon your head, it might be that you need to stop living for yourself, designing every detail of your work to build your own little kingdom for yourself. It might be the case for you. And yet for some of us, we can be our own harshest judges, can't we? We feel guilty, and we judge ourselves. We expect so much of the work that we produce. In our culture, we do. Our family is in the midst of of a college search for teenagers and beginning to try to discern where they ought to go to college. And one thing that Mary and I have learned, the trick of the trade, so to speak, that I encourage you to do the same is to, if, if you're looking for a college, Call up someone on that campus who is neutral, like a campus minister. Like an RUF campus minister especially. But if there's not an RUF there, call up some other campus ministry and ask them about that campus. They'll tell you, without a sales pitch, exactly what's going on there. It's extremely helpful. One campus minister explained to us the demographics of students that he sees on campus where he is. He said, He said, there are some students who are what I call students of the past. They're here because mom and dad came here. They're here because this has just been a part of their family and it was always um, 
just inevitable that this is where they were going to come and this is just a part of their past. There are other students who are here for the present. They're kind of detached from their family and they just want to live their lives now and these four years are going to be the best four years of their lives. And in such cases, it usually becomes five or six years. Students of the present. And then there are students of the future. He said, where I am, most of these students are students of the future. In other words, everything they do is geared towards tomorrow. Everything they do is with an eye towards their future. Everything they do is resume material. It's career-oriented. It's for future success. Everything they do, they're enslaved, as it were, to building a career of material success and social success in their future lives. They are future-oriented. I read an article recently about the modern vocation culture in our country about work, our work and the way that we approach it. And this author said this. I won't explain the whole article, but the author said said it this way. The economists of the early 20th century did not foresee that work might evolve from a means of material production to a means of identity production. They failed to anticipate that for the poor and middle class, work would remain a necessity, but for the college-educated, it would morph into a kind of religion promising identity, transcendence, and community. Call it workism, he said. Not Buddhism or Hinduism or even atheism, but workism. And it's the spirit of our age. In a failure to understand the gospel, some of us even work ourselves to the bone thinking that we will produce an identity, thinking that we'll produce significance or meaning, thinking that we'll produce something that can be accounted for. And so we work ourselves to the bone, but it's just a a false religion because we don't do the accounting of our work. Jesus does. Who then is the faithful and wise manager who's doing the job that the master gave? He says, verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing that work when he comes. He's not asking for overachievers. He's simply saying, the work that God has given you to do, be about doing that work when the master comes. And your work may not change the world as far as you can tell, It may not free the slaves. It may not make the headlines. It may not even make your demanding dad proud of you. But just do the work that God gives you to do. He will account for it more graciously than you will. And you know that's true because of the fourth point of this parable, and that's this. You can be ready if you acknowledge that the blessing of his return is not his but is yours. So there's a twist to that, right? All the others, they're not yours, they're his. This one, the blessing of his return, it's not his, it's yours. The twist happens in the parable. Did you, did you notice it? Verse 37 and 38. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come And serve them. If he comes in the second or third watch, finds them awake. Blessed are those servants. 
the blessing of his return is for you. Blessed are those servants. Blessed are those servants. Even verse 42 and 43 and 44, Peter's question provokes the same response, doesn't it? The faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing that work. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. I mean, do you hear this? Blessed is that servant. Blessed is that. It will be good for this servant when Jesus comes. If the thought of Jesus' return never crosses your mind, then you may not be ready. And if the thought of Jesus' return makes you fear that you've not done enough for him, then perhaps you don't understand the nature of this master. Jesus is gracious. And Jesus is kind. And Jesus is generous. And Jesus is thoughtful. I mean, it's a remarkable picture, really, if you think about it. And it's perfect that we're having communion today because the master in this parable comes home, he dresses himself as a servant, and he tells his servants, you sit down at my table and I will serve you. This is the graciousness and kindness of this master. It's remarkable. He is bent on doing good for his servants. Here in our church, we've, we've kind of laid out a, a theologically a pathway of ministry to think about. Not the three R's of education, but the four R's of ministry, as it were, reason and rest and renewal and restoration. That is that God reasons with us through his word, through the scripture, to persuade us of his truth. And through that, he offers to us the rest that is our justification by faith in Christ alone. And as we grow in that, he begins to renew us by the work of his Holy Spirit, growing us in grace, even yes today. And he also offers us the anticipation, the hope, the promise of restoration that is to be made yet again new as all things were created to be. And if you've apprehended these things, then the thoughts of his return will not only frequent, be frequent in your mind, but they also will be marked not by dread, but by eager expectation. They'll be marked not by worry that you haven't done enough, but rather by happy anticipation. They'll be marked not by skeptical arrogance that maybe he never will come, but rather by abiding faith that he will do just as he's promised to do. And so you can say with Paul in 2 Timothy 4, late in his life, Paul wrote these words to Timothy. He said, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there is waiting for me, I know, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. He's talking about the, the day of, of Jesus' second coming. And you might hear that and think, well, don't, be careful, don't, don't, don't compare me to the Apostle Paul because Paul ran a strong race. He fought a strong fight. And I'm not sure I could ever fight like Paul fought or race like Paul raced. That would be too much for me. But he says something else. Here, who else enjoys this? Paul says not only himself, 
And not only me, he says, but to all will be given this crown of righteousness, to all who have loved his appearing. Simply to those who have loved the appearing of Jesus. So my question for you is, do you love the appearing of Jesus? Does it make you marvel with joy that the eternal Son of God walked in the flesh, in the Mediterranean world, two millennia ago? That He actually, the Son of God eternally, healed broken lives? That He fed hungry souls? That He confronted injustice in that time? Does it cause your heart to have joy to consider the reality that Jesus appeared and faced our accuser, that he suffered our death, and that he rose again in glory so that we actually might hope for everlasting life with him? Does it give you joy to think of his appearing? Do you love the appearing of Jesus? If so, then Isaiah spoke of you when he wrote those words you heard earlier this morning from Isaiah 25. On that day, God will, he said, swallow up death forever and wipe away every tear and take away the reproach of his people. And what will this people then say? Did you hear it earlier this morning, what these people would say? Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Do you hear that? This is the Old Testament. Isaiah. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him. Now let us rejoice in His salvation. The blessing of His return is not His. It's yours. Do you believe that the Lord will return? I hope that you do. I hope that you do. We, we invite him to every Sunday morning together, don't we? As we end our worship service, we invite him to come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. And so can you be ready when he does come? The timing of his coming is not yours. It's his. The dwelling in which you live is not yours. It's his. The accounting of your work is not yours. It's his. And the blessing of his return It's not His. It's yours. He has told us that He will come. And He will. So be ready. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that you have given us this word. And that you've promised that you will indeed come in your Son. And bring your kingdom to fruition. And Father, we pray that you would give us faith to believe it, even as we come to these tables, to eat and drink together as you serve us, Father. Increase our faith that we might believe and have life in you, in Jesus' name. And for his sake we pray. Amen.